Chapter 15 The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer And Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In connection with my Indian experience, I conceive it to be my duty to devote a few lines to one of the bravest women that ever lived, namely, Pine Leaf, in Indian, Bar Chi Ampe. For an Indian, she possessed great intellectual powers. She was endowed with extraordinary muscular strength, with the activity of the cat and the speed of the antelope. Her features were pleasing and her form symmetrical. She had lost a brother in the attack on our village before mentioned, a great brave, and her twin brother. He was a fine specimen of the race of red men and bade fair to rise to distinction. But he was struck down in his strength, and Pine Leaf was left to avenge his death. She was at that time twelve years of age, and she solemnly vowed that she would never marry until she had killed a hundred of the enemy with her own hand. Whenever a war party started, Pine Leaf was the first to volunteer to accompany them. Her presence among them caused much amusement to the old veterans. But if she lacked physical strength, she always rode the fleetest horses and none of the warriors could outstrip her. All admired her for her ambition, and as she advanced in years, many of the braves grew anxious for the speedy accomplishment of her vow. She had chosen my party to serve in, and when I engaged in the fiercest struggles, no one was more promptly at my side than the young heroine. She seemed incapable of fear, and when she arrived at womanhood, could fire a gun without flinching and use the Indian weapons with as great dexterity as the most accomplished warrior. I began to feel more than a common attachment toward her. Her intelligence charmed me, and her modest and becoming demeanor singled her out from her sex. One day, while riding leisurely along, I asked her to marry me, provided we both returned safe. She flashed her dark eye upon mine. You have too many already, she said. Do you suppose I would break my vow to the great spirit? He sees and knows all things. He would be angry with me and would not suffer me to live to avenge my brother's death. I told her that my medicine said that I must marry her, and then I could never be vanquished or killed in battle. She laughed and said, Well, I will marry you. When we return? No, but when the pine leaves turn yellow. I reflected that it would soon be autumn, and regarded her promise as valid. A few days afterward, it occurred to my mind that pine leaves do not turn yellow, 
and I saw I had been practiced upon. When I again spoke to her on the subject, I said, Pine leaf, you promised to marry me when the pine leaves should turn yellow. It has occurred to me that they never grow yellow. She returned no answer except a hearty laugh. Am I to understand that you never intend to marry me? I inquired. Yes, I will marry you, she said, with a coquettish smile. But when? When you shall find a red-headed Indian. I saw I advanced nothing by importuning her, and I let the matter rest. However, to help her on with her vow, I never killed an Indian if she was by to perform it for me, thinking that when her number were immolated, there might be better chance of pressing my suit. We frequently shifted our camping ground in order to keep up with the buffalo and furnish our horses with sufficient grass, for we had such an immense number that the prairie round our lodges in a few days had the appearance of a closely mown meadow. Finally, we removed to the western side of the mountain again, and encamped on Little Horn River, one of the sources of the Yellowstone. Shortly after our encampment, we found there was a village of Cheyennes about 12 miles distant, and an incessant warfare was maintained between the two villages for 20 days. Sometimes they would take three or four crow scalps, in return, our party would retaliate by taking as many of theirs. Thus they went on, with varying fortune, during the whole twenty days. I had never been engaged in these skirmishes, but one evening I, with three others, among whom was Yellow Belly, resolved to go on an adventure. Accordingly, we started for the Cheyenne, arriving there the next morning, and unhesitatingly entered their village while the inmates were quietly reposing. After passing through one quarter of their village, we saw an Indian approaching who, on perceiving us, wheeled his horse to escape. I shot an arrow into his back, but before he fell, I rode up, cut him down with my battle-axe, and rode on. One of our party, not wishing to lose his scalp, dismounted to take it. In doing so, he lost his horse, which followed us, leaving his rider on foot close to the enemy's village, whence the aroused warriors were issuing like hornets. Perceiving his danger, I rode back and took him up behind me. We had to run for it, but we made good our escape driving home before us seven horses captured from the enemy. This was considered a great achievement by our Crow brethren, and they again washed their faces. The enemy now charged on our village, killing six crows, among whom was a brother-in-law of mine. His relatives appealed to me to avenge them, supposing that the enemy would renew the attack the next day. I selected one hundred and thirty warriors, all well-mounted, to waylay them. We posted ourselves midway between the belligerent villages, but the Cheyennes had passed within a few hundred yards before we were in ambush, 
being there, the idea occurred to me to await their return. On their repulse from the village, we would spring up and cut off their retreat, and, I made no doubt, succeed in killing a great number of their warriors. It fell out as I had expected. The crows drove them back with a loss to the enemy of four. And when they neared us, their horses were badly jaded, and our friends hotly in pursuit. We sprung up, cutting off their retreat, and they, sorely pressed in their rear, seeing our party in front cutting down right and left, became panic-struck and fled in all directions. We took sixteen scalps, with the horses and equipments of the fallen warriors, and returned home in triumph. This made twenty scalps taken in one day, which was considered by the crows a glorious victory, and the scalp dance was performed with unusual vivacity. In this battle, the heroine was by my side and fought with her accustomed audacity. I counted five coups, and she three, for three enemies killed with her lance. The Cheyennes, disconcerted with their misadventure, moved their village away from the Crow territory. We also took up our line of march and moved on to Clark's Fork, a branch of the Yellowstone, where we found abundance of buffalo and good grass. While encamped here, I received a letter from Mr. McKenzie, written at Fort Union at the mouth of the Yellowstone, where he desired me to see him. It was delivered to me by Mr. Winters, who, in company with one man, had found his way unharmed. McKenzie wished me to see him immediately on business of importance as he wished, through my influence, to establish a trade with the Crows. On communicating my intention of performing the journey, all expostulated at my going. I gave them my positive word that I would return in eighteen sons, if not killed on the way. It was a long and hazardous journey to undertake, having to traverse a distance of seven hundred and sixty miles exposed to numerous bands of hostile Indians. I succeeded in reaching the fort in safety, where I found Mackenzie with a great stock of miscellaneous goods. I arrived late in the afternoon, dispatched my business with him hastily, and started on my return in the morning. I took ten pack horses laden with goods to trade with the Indians, in addition to which several boats were freighted and sent to me up the Yellowstone. Two men accompanied me to the Crow country. We had no trouble on our way until we arrived within a few miles of our village, as I supposed it, when, as we were marching on, I remarked something unfamiliar in the appearance of the place. I ordered the two men to turn their animals up a little valley close by while I took a nearer look at the village. A closer inspection confirmed my mistake. I saw the lodges were painted a different color from our own. I followed the pack horses and found a trail which led to the Crow Village, 
and concealed from the observation of the village we had approached. Soon after entering the trail, I discovered the fresh tracks of five Indians going the direction that we were. I halted the pack horses and rode on to get a sight of them. At a short distance, I perceived the five men, and unobserved by them, I rode on and entered a low place until I approached within a few rods of them. I took a short survey of them and concluded that they must be enemies belonging to the village we had just left. They were on foot, and I conceived myself a match for the whole five. I leveled my rifle and was taking aim when my horse moved his head and disconcerted my sight. I tried again with precisely the same result. I then dismounted and advanced two or three steps nearer my object. As I was about to fire, having the rein on my arm, the horse made another motion, thus spoiling my aim for the third time. At that moment, one of them made a yawning expression in the crow language, and I was so terrified at his narrow escape that the rifle dropped from my hand. I called to them, telling them the danger they had escaped. Why, said they, you would not have attacked five of us. Yes, I said, and would have killed every one of you had you been enemies. They then informed me that they had lost two men that day near the village of the Blackfeet, who were now, beyond doubt, dancing over their scalps. I did not wait to hear more, but directed them to return my horses and assist the men in getting on to the Crow Village as soon as possible. I rode forward to make my arrival known. My return was welcomed with the liveliest demonstrations of joy by the whole tribe. But I delayed no time in ceremonial. I called a council forthwith and informed them that the Blackfeet were encamped ten miles distant, that two of our warriors had that day fallen by their hands, and that we must go and avenge their death. The chief assented, but, as a preliminary, directed me and another to count their lodges that night. I undertook the dangerous task, although extremely fatigued with my long journey. We succeeded in the object of our expedition, and found their lodges outnumbered ours by one. There are, as a general thing, from four to six warriors to a lodge. The Blackfoot village comprised 233 lodges. Hence, we could form a pretty accurate estimate of the number of warriors we had to contend with. Their village was closely watched by our spies. Every movement made by the enemy was promptly reported to our chief. During the night, they appeared to sleep soundly, probably fatigued with a late dance. But in the morning, they were astir betimes and, having packed up, started forward in our direction, apparently unaware of our presence. On they came, men, women, and children, 
utterly unconscious of the terrible shock that awaited them. Our warriors were never better prepared for a conflict, and never more certain of victory. We were drawn up on a high table prairie, our whole force concealed from view at no greater distance than half pistol shot. Their chief led the van, and with him were several young squaws, who were laughing and dancing around him, evidently to his great amusement. They were near enough to launch the thunders of war upon them, and our chief gave orders to charge. The order was instantly carried into effect. The chief, who, a moment before, was so joyous, surrounded by his tawny young squaws, was the first to fall beneath my battle-axe, and his attendants scattered like chaff before the wind. We were upon the warriors so unexpectedly that they had hardly time to draw their weapons before they were overthrown and put to flight. They were encumbered with women, children, and baggage. Our attention was directed solely to the men. The women were unharmed, except those who were overturned by our horses. During the engagement, a powerful Blackfoot aimed a blow at me with his battle-axe, which Pineleaf deprived of its effect by piercing his body through with her lance. In a few moments, the fighting was over, and after pursuing the flying enemy through the timber, we returned to collect the spoils of victory. We took 170 scalps, over 150 women and children, besides abundance of weapons, baggage, and horses. The crows had 29 wounded. This was a severe blow to the Blackfeet. Such a slaughter is of rare occurrence in Indian warfare. Notwithstanding this sad defeat, they rallied their broken band and attacked us again in the afternoon. But it amounted to nothing, and they fled in gloomy confusion beyond the Crow territory. Pineleaf never signalized herself more than on this occasion. She counted six coups having killed four of the enemy with her own hand. She had but few superiors in wielding the battle-axe. My horse was killed by the blow which was aimed at my head by the Indian whom the heroine killed. I wore a superb headdress, ornamented with eagle's feathers and weasel's tails. The labor of many days. Early in the action, three of these tails were severed by a bullet which grazed my head. These Blackfeet shoot close, said the heroine, as she saw the ornaments fall. But never fear, the Great Spirit will not let them harm us. I took a very pretty young woman prisoner, but was obliged to give her up to one of the braves who had my promise before the battle that if I took one, I would give her to him and if he took one, he should give her to me. When a warrior of the Crow tribe takes a woman prisoner, she is considered his sister, and he can never marry her. 
If she marries, her husband is brother-in-law to her captor. Our prisoners soon forgot their captivity. They even seemed pleased with the change, for they joined with great alacrity in our scalp dance over the scalps of their own people. All Indian women are considered by the stronger sex as menials. They are thoroughly reconciled to their degradation, and the superiority of their lords and masters is their chiefest subject of boast. They are patient, plodding, and unambitious, although there are instances in savage life of a woman manifesting superior talent and making her influence felt upon the community. During my visit at Fort Union, I engaged to build a fort for Mackenzie to store his goods in safety at the mouth of the Bighorn River, one of the branches of the Yellowstone. Accordingly, I repaired to the place to select a good site and commence operations. On arriving at the spot, I found the boats close by, but as there was no secure quay at the junction of the streams, I selected a site about a mile below. There were fifty men who had arrived with the boats, hired to assist me in erecting the fort. The stipulated dimensions were 120 yards for each front, the building to be a solid square with a blockhouse at opposite corners. The fort was erected of hewn logs planted perpendicularly in the ground. The walls were 18 feet high. As soon as the pickets were up, we built our houses inside in order to be prepared for the approach of winter. When I had been engaged about six weeks upon its construction, 400 lodges of crows moved into our immediate vicinity, thus affording us plenty of company and a sufficient force to protect us against the attacks of hostile tribes. When we had completed our building, we unloaded the boats and commenced trading with the Indians. During the first year, the company was very unsuccessful, sinking over $17,000 in the undertaking. This, however, was principally attributable to the outlay upon the fort. The wages of the 50 men engaged in constructing it ran for 12 months, and to the number of presents which it is customary on such occasions to distribute among the Indians. After the crows had removed to the fort, they were repeatedly annoyed with attacks from different hostile tribes. I was engaged in two small encounters during the winter, in both of which we were completely victorious. The crows were fully occupied in protecting their own horses or levying contributions upon their neighbors. During the winter, we accumulated a large amount of peltry, which in the spring I sent down to Fort Union in five Mackinac boats, built by ourselves for the purpose. I sent a sufficient number of men to take good care of the boats and to return upstream with a fresh supply of goods. I then left the fort in charge of Winters, leaving him 30 men for a guard. I also had provided an ample stock of dried meat, so that they might avoid the risk of hunting for provisions. Early in May, we commenced our march in search of summer quarters. 
We traveled by easy stages and on a circuitous route, so that when we finally arrived at Rosebud Creek, a branch of the Yellowstone, we found ourselves but twenty miles distant from the fort. After we had remained about a week at our encampment, our village was infested by a large war party of Blackfeet. It happened very fortunately we were building a medicine lodge at the time, and our whole force was at home, which circumstance most probably preserved us from a disastrous defeat. Our enemies numbered about 4,000 warriors, to oppose whom we had 2,800 practiced warriors, besides the old men, who always acted as village guards. At daybreak, the enemy advanced upon our village with great impetuosity. Our war horses being tied to our lodge doors, the first alarm found our defenders ready mounted to meet the assailants. We did not allow them to enter the village, but advanced on to the plain to meet them. The contest was severe for several minutes, and the clash of battle axes and the fierce yells of the opposing forces made the whole prairie tremble. The two parties charged alternately according to the Indian mode of warfare. But the crows gained ground at every attack, for they fought with everything at stake. The fight lasted for several hours. Early in the action, we discovered a maneuver of the enemy which would probably have resulted seriously for us had we not perceived it in time. About half their force was detached to attack us in the rear and take possession of the village. I formed from fifteen to eighteen hundred warriors into a body and rode down to meet their detachment as it wound around the foot of a small hill. They were in quick march to gain their position and approached in seeming security. My warriors being formed upon the brow of the hill under which the enemy was passing, I gave the order for a rush down the hill upon them. The attack was made with such irresistible force that everything in our way was overthrown, and warriors and horses were knocked into promiscuous piles. We happened to burst upon their center, thus severing them in two, and the confusion they became involved in was so irremediable that their only hope was to get back to their main body with as little delay as possible. In the attack, a lance thrown by a Blackfoot perforated my legging, just grazing the calf of my leg, and entered the body of my horse, killing him on the spot. My ever-present friend, Pineleaf, instantly withdrew it, releasing me from a very precarious situation, as I was pinned close to the horse and his dying struggles rendered such proximity extremely unsafe. I sprang upon the horse of a young warrior who was wounded and called to some of our women to convey the wounded man to a place of safety. The heroine then joined me, and we dashed into the conflict. Her horse was immediately after killed, and I discovered her in a hand-to-hand -hand encounter with a dismounted Blackfoot. 
her lance in one hand and her battle-axe in the other. Three or four springs of my steed brought me upon her antagonist, and, striking him with the breast of my horse when at full speed, I knocked him to the earth senseless. And before he could recover, she pinned him to the ground with her lance and scalped him. When I had overturned the warrior, Pineleaf called to me, Ride on! I have him safe now! I rode on accordingly, but she was soon mounted again and at my side. The surviving Blackfeet speedily dispersed, and they all retreated together, leaving the crows master of the field. They left behind ninety-one killed, besides carrying off many dead with their wounded. We lost thirty-one killed, and a large number wounded. I had five horses killed under me, but received no wound. Our enemies, in their retreat, drove off sixteen hundred horses, among which were eighty of my own, but we had plenty left, and we considered these only lent to them. We had no dance, and the relatives of the slain went through their usual mourning. A few days after this battle, a messenger arrived from the fort with a request for me to return as quickly as possible, as the Blackfeet were continually harassing the men, and they were in fear of a general attack. Accordingly, I returned in the latter part of June, and found affairs in a very serious condition. The Indians had grown very bold, and it was hazardous to venture outside the fort. One morning, seven men were sent about one mile away to cut house logs, it being supposed there were no Indians in the vicinity. Sometime in the forenoon, I heard the report of a rifle close to our gate. I ran out and just caught sight of the retreating Indians as they entered the bushes. They had shot and scalped one of our men as he was chopping only a few paces from the gate. The danger that the other men might be placed in then occurred to me, and, ordering the men to follow me, I mounted my horse and hastened to their rescue. I was followed by about one-half the men, the remainder preferring the protection of the wooden walls. I soon discovered our men. They were surrounded by forty Indians, the chief of whom appeared to be addressing the sun, and was gesticulating with his battle-axe. On his raising his arm, I sent a ball through his body and then shouted to the men to run to me. They started, but one of them was shot down before they reached me. The survivors were so terrified that they did not dare to stop when they reached me, but continued their course unslackened until they gained the fort. My followers, seeing their alarm, became fugitives in turn and I was left alone within gunshot of the remaining thirty-nine Indians. Uttering deafening yells, they made a rush for me. My horse became frightened, and I could scarcely mount him. However, by running by his side a few paces, I managed to leap on his back and retreated at full speed while their bullets and arrows flew around me like hail. When I approached the fort, a voice near me cried, Oh, Jim, don't leave me here to be killed. 
I wheeled round and, with my double-barreled gun in my hand, made a charge toward the whole approaching party, who, seeing my resolute bearing, turned and scampered off. I rode up to the person who had called me and found him an old man who was unable to run and had been abandoned by his valorous companions to the mercy of the savages. I assisted him onto my horse and was about to spring on behind him when the horse sprang forward, leaving the old man's gun behind and carried him safely to the fort. By this time, the Indians had returned upon me. I ran wherever a shelter offered itself, and, when closely pressed, would face round and menace them with my guns. Within a few hundred yards of the fort, I came to a small covering which had been used as a shelter by the horse guards, and I sprang into it with the Indians at my heels. After expending the contents of my guns, I plied them with arrows to their hearts' content until they gave up the fray and retired. This took place in fair view of the fort, when not one of its doughty inmates dare come to my assistance, and who even refused to resign their firearms to the women who were anxious to come to my rescue. When at length I succeeded in reaching the fort, I favored the men with my unreserved opinion of them. I had been the means of saving their lives even after the chief of the savages had returned thanks to the sun for their scalps, which he had already deemed secure. I really believe that with Pine Leaf and three other squaws I could have stormed and taken the fort from their possession. These men were not mountaineers. They were nearly all Canadians and had been hired in the East. They were unused to savage warfare, and only two of them had seen an Indian battle. If they had come out like men, we might have killed one-half the Indians, and I should have been spared a great deal of hard feeling. They acknowledged, however, that I had flogged the Indians alone, and that six of them were indebted to me for their lives. In July, after the arrival of the boats, the crows again returned to the fort. They came to make purchases with what small means they possessed, as they had disposed of all their peltry on their previous visit. They, however, brought in a great quantity of roots, cherries, berries, etc., which they traded for articles of necessity. They also sold 60 horses, which we sent to Mackenzie at the lower fort, Clark. It greatly charms the Indians to see new goods. When they have the means to buy, there is no end to their purchases. When the lances, battle axes, and guns are spread before their eyes, glittering with their burnished steel, notwithstanding they may have a dozen serviceable weapons at home, they must infallibly purchase a new one. If one purchases, all must follow. Hence, there is no limit to their demand but the very important one imposed by the extent of their exchangeable commodities. The newly arrived boats were manned with Canadians, all strangers in the country, nearly all having been imported for boating, 
as they were willing to submit to the hardships of such a life for a smaller remuneration than men hired in the States. On their arrival, their brethren related a thousand tales about the Indians and what feats I had performed against them single-handed. They listened to the marvelous tales and gazed at me in wondering admiration. When Canadians are fairly broken in and have become familiar with Indian character, they make the best of Indian fighters, especially when put to it in defense of their own lives. They become superior trappers, too, being constituted, like their native ponies, with a capacity to endure the extremest hardships and privations, and to endure starvation for an incredibly long period. End of chapter 15